Support for WAER Original Podcasts comes from California Closets of Syracuse, located in DeWitt. California Closets can help you get your entire home organized with custom design storage solutions for the home office, kitchen pantry, closets, and more. Online at californiaclosets.com. This is Pop Life from WAER. I'm Kendall Phillips, and we start this episode with a little dive back into history. Now, back in the late 1600s, there emerged a popular form of public communication, the broadside, literally a big sheet with some words or illustrations to make a point. Now, among the many broadsides plastered on the streets, one popular genre emerged focusing on whimsical images poking fun at major institutions. So a picture of peasants sitting on the throne with their feet resting on the king or of the bishop outside digging graves while the working folks sat in the splendor of the cathedral. Historians note that these satirical broadsides were a way of depicting the social world turned upside down, and they allowed average folks to at least fantasize about being liberated from oppressive social orders. Now, while the impulse to satirize structures of power may be old, each new generation finds new mediums and new ways of making their humorous point, and our modern age is filled with media framed as parody and satire. But is satire an appropriate or effective way of speaking back to structures of power and those in authority? Here to help us explore the role of satire in pushing society forward is Dr. Sharice Laprie, a professor of communications at Syracuse University and regular Pop Life guest, whose new book is entitled Diversity and Satire, Laughing at Processes of Marginalization. Sharice, welcome back to Pop Life. Thank you so much, Kendall. It's always a joy to be in the studio with you. Always great to have you in the studio, and I absolutely love this book. Um, so where did what was the inspiration for writing this? Oh, my goodness. Okay, so... The inspiration for writing it is because I taught this class. Now, we got to start with the inspiration for the class. And satire coming out of Syracuse hasn't been particularly well-received, if you will. Of course, for our listeners out there, I encourage you to just Google Theta Tau. Oh. Uh, and that was the uproar in 2018. Um was a series of st- supposedly satirical videos uh, coming out of an engineering fraternity. Uh, they said they were doing a satirical sketch in the basement, and then they were surreptitious- that's surreptitiously recorded because they were shared on their closed private Facebook page. But then somebody recorded them, shared them with the DO, ended up being on you know the homepage of the New York Times, CNN, et cetera. Um, having said that, I taught this class for the first time in 2016, fall 2016, which was also the 2016 election. But I was inspired to teach the class because of an incident that happened in Flint Hall the year before, fall 2015, where uh, a student came up to me and showed me a picture of a whiteboard. And it had, you know, the hangman game where you have to guess the word. You have so many chances. Uh, And the clue was people who annoy you, N blank G-G-E-R-S. And the student was outraged. She was livid. She was offended. She was upset. She was frustrated. All of the things, all of which were very, very, very legitimate. And I said, baby, I understand that. All of what you're feeling is completely legitimate. It's completely correct. It's completely understood. Having said that, I know that this is a South Park episode. And I know it is the opening scene to a brilliant South Park episode that has been critically acclaimed. It's called... um, with apologies to Jesse Jackson, season seven, I believe. Uh, having said that, it's clear that the person who wrote this on the whiteboard in your dorm 
either didn't watch the whole episode, which is plausible in this day and age with YouTube, didn't watch the whole episode, didn't um, didn't get the joke, right? The fact that, you know, when we use words or when we um, make st- statements that hurt mm. the feelings of white folks, and this is where the whole sketch goes, the whole episode goes, I won't spend time describing it, but... Um, that that is cause for alarm. That is social panic. But the words that we've kind of thrown around for centuries that hurt marginalized people, in this case, black people, um, are, you know, it's fodder for joke. All right. So that's really the premise of the whole episode. Spoiler alert. It's naggers. Naggers <laughs> are people who annoy you. Um, but, you know, the fact that here we are at this prestigious, sure. you know, prestigious university and this great piece of satire is so misunderstood and so detached from its source material that it can be deployed and simultaneously hurt mm-hmm. um hurt some members of our community while other members of the community are blowing off that hurt says to me that we need to have a systematic unpacking of satire. And so, and then, you know, in the class, I also talk about on the Hill or over the Hill, which was a show from 2005 on formal, formerly known as Hill TV, where similarly they were trying to do uh, daily show styled stuff. Mm-hmm. And this is when like daily show and Colbert were winning Emmys hand over fist. And so, but, you know, they thought they were making satire. They were making jokes that they found funny, but in the end was very much received as derogatory towards black people, disabled people, queer people, women. Like all the jokes were just laughing at sorority girls, were laughing at black folks. Uh, our former Chancellor Cantor shut it down after they hung a noose in the quad as part of a joke. Yep. I remember this well. <laughs> yes. So, you know, we, we have a long history that demonstrates we need to have an educational uh, space to discuss what satire is and what it isn't and what it does and what it does when it fails. Sure, sure. And, it, and that is that certainly none of these are unique entirely, unfortunately, to Syracuse Not campus. And I should say to our listeners, because I know a lot of the folks listening teach in various places and various kinds of institutions, that this book, in addition to being brilliant, is kind of set up as a bit of a textbook. It really is a kind of unpacking. It includes student work. So it really is a rich tool for anybody to bring and prepare students, whether they're studying media or culture broadly, to think about how these satires work and how they don't. It's interesting because um, we are, we do seem to be in a time where satire is everywhere. Like it seems like it just is on every version of talk show. It, it, maybe I'm just seeing that, but I'm wondering if the pervasiveness, the fact that everything's a satire, everything's just a joke, does that limit the effectiveness of satire? Well, you know, Hyatt would say that in order for something to be satire, it has to be intentionally created as satire. And I think that when we live in a space that's so saturated with humor or offhanded references or inside jokes, we're not actually labeling anything satire. We're just kind of speaking off the cuff and using the word satire as an excuse, right? So we're kind of retroactively saying, oh, that was satire. You just didn't get it. You're like, well, this is not a satirical outlet. You never said this was satire. So there is no reason for me to think it's satire. And I think um, there was a really great daily show where Trevor Noah rips on Trump 
for uh, first he says, you know, um, Obama and Clinton founded ISIS. And then everyone's like, no, what? Okay. And then all of his handlers are like, okay, well, maybe this is what he meant and blah, blah, blah. (laughs) And like spinning the crap out of this. Then he turns around two days later. He's like, that's sarcasm. Doesn't anybody get sarcasm? And the president is not a satirist. The president (laughs) should not be a satirist. And yes, Clinton had his moments and Bush had his moments and Obama had their moments, you know, where they said a joke and it landed well. Sure. But if you're running for president or if you are president, you need to really think about when are you delivering sarcastic or satirical statements and how do you um, bookend that so that the audience knows? Because the words that come from your mouth are the words of the president and the president arguably should not be a satirist. As we think about, say, Zelensky, who started off as an actor and a satirist, then became president. I mean, like, there's a high chance I may have missed it at some point, but I haven't heard him delivering jokes (laughs) since he's been president and definitely not since the war broke out a year, though, you know, the war started with uh, Russia attacked Ukraine a year ago, right? Because I think he recognizes, even though he is a trained satirist and is a trained actor and comedian, this is not the place for it. So in answer to your original question, when satire is pervasive, we no longer make the effort to say, this is satire. I need you to look at it as satire. We just say things. And then when we're attacked, we blow it off and say it was satirical and you don't get it. No, I think that's a great that's a great rule. We should all embody that rule. If we're going to be satirical or make a joke, it should be framed that way. It should not be an excuse afterwards going, oh, you're offended? I was just kidding. Right. And I will also say, you know, even on Twitter, we see that people will post tweets with a slash S, right? Because I need you to know this is satire or this is sarcasm, right? There's that little indicator there. Sometimes people don't. I always find myself pausing before I get outraged at a tweet. Let me look at this person's bio. Because in that bio, they will say, this is a parody account. Meanwhile, everyone's getting angry at the tweet, but they've literally said, don't take anything I say seriously. This is a satirical outlet. We can discuss when that works and when it doesn't. (laughs) But as far as I'm concerned, they've covered their butt. They've said this, everything I write should be assumed as satire. And, you know, I think those markers are what's lost when it's everywhere. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit like w- those days when I, I remember early days seeing Onion headlines and saying, oh, my, that's horrible. Oh, oh, it's the Onion. Sorry. Yeah. yeah I, I just didn't catch that part. But it does seem like a lot of folks are doing that. Now, I would say one of the things I really admire about your book is that you have so many amazing examples Ooh, and drawn you. from so many different mediums. And I should say uh, for folks who have not yet had a chance to go uh, look at the book or consider buying it or adopting it for a class – it's not divided by medium, which I thought was a very smart move. It's divided by kind of targets of satire, things like race and gender and class, et cetera. But I love that you drew from so many different, from television, from the internet memes, from comedians, from all kinds of places. Were there any of those examples that really stood out to you and saying, wow, that was just really great satire? Yes, yes. There's uh, First of all, every example in there. I think is really great satire. That's why I included it. But I would also say I, as I was writing, I made the choice to remove content Mm. or at least not feature it in images if it wasn't satire. So if when you go through the book, except for the introduction and the conclusion, those two bookends that have dispassionate content, 
every image you see in the book you know is satire. So again, coming back to that marker, everything, every piece, every image you see is satire. Um, there were so many that I just adore. There was one that I use all the time that I love is Gay Wedding, uh, Key and Peele's Gay oh, Wedding yeah. from 2013, <laughs> which is brilliant for so many reasons. Having said that, I had a student who wrote a great essay, and I was like, you know what? Let me just put this student's essay in because I could sit here and write it, but the student did so well that uh, unpacking what makes that segment, that sketch, so funny in the way it builds. Um, the absurdity of their homophobia builds from something like a kernel. It's like, oh, do the boys wear dresses? To something as big and absurd as, you know, uh, who, who's going to sing the gay hymns, right? The, what? There's no gay hymns, right? <laughs> but we're building that absurdity. We're magnifying it so you can see how homophobia operates on the small scale and the big scale and know that that spectrum all contributes to the dehumanization and marginalization of um, queer people, queer and gay people. Um, one that I didn't enter, and this mm. was one that I have not taught, but it's hands down my favorite, it is my favorite piece of television of all time probably, and that is Return of the King, which is the second episode in the first season of The Boondocks. And the episode theorizes, uh, you know, we're just on the other side of Black History Month, the episode theorizes that, or hypostulates, postulates, hypothesizes, Any of those, imagines yeah. <laughs> um, that King didn't die, that King was shot and he fell into a coma for decades and he wakes up just before uh, the 2000 election and he goes to try and vote because he's Martin Luther King, like you got to yeah. vote. So he gets up to vote. He goes in a wheelchair. They've got like the nurse is pushing him. Right? He's right out of the hospital and he gets turned away because of voter irregularities. Uh, <laughs> like how absurd is that? Uh, and then also him trying to understand how you navigate, you know, this world in 2000. There's this great bit where he says, you know, I tried to download some Mahalia Jackson, but I couldn't remember my iTunes password, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, the, the absurdity of the world we live in, but also, especially in a post-9-11 America, the binary of patriotism yeah. that we would no longer value uh, the nonviolent approach of King that we valorize to no end in the post 9-11 world where everything was stumping for war. So that's hands down one of my favorite clips of all time. It doesn't make it because there's a lot of N-I-G-G-E-Rs in there. And I've never felt comfortable no. showing it in class because I feel that's like advanced level stuff if we're gonna talk sure. about it. And in even though satire is made to make you uncomfortable with the things that you've come to know and believe and, you know, the world showcasing how absurd the status quo is. Um, it's, it's still not something that I feel terribly comfortable watching with a bunch of 18 year olds. And then lo and behold, 2019, when people were scrawling NIGGR yes. on dorms at Syracuse, I see now, yeah, I, I feel I'm good with my decision. <laughs> you've, you've definitely made the right choice. I love the way you bring the students in. So one of the things, a feature of the book I, I was really thought was so enriching were the inclusion of, of student essays. Um, I'm wondering about that decision for you as an author. Clearly, that's, that's uh, making a particular choice. I'm also wondering, 
were those all essays that had been written for the class that you came back later and curated and said, yeah, that really works here? Were there any students who, who wrote for the book? And then I'm also curious, what was the student reaction when you said, hey, I want to include your essay in this book? Sure. All of those essays were written in the class. And so the class was designed where we went through each topic, like how do we satirize socioeconomic status? How do we satirize gender? How do we satirize sexuality? And this is more than just laughing at poor people, laughing at women, laughing at gay people, laughing at racial and ethnic minorities, uh, black people, Latino people. It's about showcasing the absurdity by which these groups have become marginalized. Mm. That's what satire does. Satire doesn't punch down, even though, you know, Chappelle will say he doesn't even know what that means. Uh, Satire doesn't make jokes at the disenfranchised. It punches up. It says, look at the system or the people that have created this world that is absurd. Um, So, That was the practice of the class. So the students had to unpack a given artifact. They could pick their favorite satirist Mm. and unpack an artifact from the satirist that addressed issue, you know, whatever week we were in, whatever section we were discussing. Um, And some of them were really great. And some of them got better over the course of the semester, right? So, you know, but I went back and chose essays from the class primarily because I think it's a very accessible textbook, but it is, as you said, written as a textbook. Here's all the information you need to know. Here are some exercises. Here are some examples of student work. I did that also to kind of, um, the word is not demystify, but um, uh, pull away the elitism of expertise. Sure, sure, sure. You know, like this is what the students can talk about. This is how they talk about this artifact, this segment, this tweet, this political cartoon. This is how they explain the value of it. And if it's problematic, I don't think I included any ones that really, no, I didn't include any essays where it's like the student unpacks the problematic satire, but there were a few of those. You know, how do we talk about those things in a layperson way? One of the things as someone who teaches race and gender, you know, there's this rhetoric that if we just make the students more aware, we'll solve the world's problems. <laughs> but in the end, the students are going out and getting jobs in spaces where they're literate at the bottom of the social hierarchy. So how do you tell your boss this is a little bit racist? Yeah. You know, like practicing that language around satire, around anything is um, incredibly valuable, especially because we live in like a snark filled Twitter-based discourse, which doesn't work in the workplace. And we're all supposed to be able to take a joke. Yeah. Oh, can't you take a joke? Why are you so uptight? Why are you causing trouble as opposed to looking at the people in charge? So I'm curious, for your students who were part of this, have you heard back from any of them? Have they had experience out in the world dealing with satire or had any reaction to the book coming out? Sure. Actually, you know, I... Oh, crap. I got to email all of them and and send them a coupon. Uh, Obviously, I had to get um, write-offs from all of them. And then I also sent them early proofs so they could see where and how their essays were fitting into the chapter. But, um, you know, since it's come out, I realized, oh, my goodness, I have not emailed all them kids. I got to email all them kids. Uh, And I use kids in the sweetest sense because some of them are definitely older than I am. But, um, you know, I... For the same exercise that I've done in non-satirical classes, you know, take the take the time to write and explain this is why the thing you said perpetuates this problem or this is why the thing that we're creating is actually going to change the way people think about this group or what have you uh, has consistently been uh, 
the most well-received component of my class because, you know, the students are actually, usually I have them write an email to their immediate boss, right? Practice explaining these issues because we keep getting into this rhetoric of like, you know, um, you, yeah, you can't take a joke or you didn't get what I meant or whatever. And being able to explain to someone, hey, no, I get what you meant, but I need you to see that by using this language in this space and framing this person in this way, mm. you're actually perpetuating anti-black discrimination. Sure. You're perpetuating classism that calls you know low-income people lazy, right? You're perpetuating these things. And I can still love you and I can still appreciate the joke you think you made. Yeah. But in order for us to all be better, we need to be able to talk about this. So it's been very well received. And I have one author, Patty Terhoon. I just got to shout out Patty because Patty is a regular contributor to The Onion. She's got a piece in The New Yorker, um, a s- satire writer. And she and I actually also have a, um, um, a book chapter mm-hmm. in um, satire post-Trump looking at how, and I I cited in the book as well, looking at how John Oliver um, educates while entertaining, right? So she did this amazing format analysis of uh, popular John Oliver segments and found that he's actually sharing information more than 50% of the time. Mm. So when we talk about, for example, um, you know, effective satire, satire can only be effective if we all understand the absurdities. Right. What John Oliver does is he's like, look at this absurdity. Look at this fact. Now I'm going to make a joke about it. Look at this fact. Now I'm going to make a joke about it. He's not just making jokes in the in the hopes that you know the fact. He's giving you the fact so that we can all laugh together. And so much of satire exists without that fact. That teaching part does not need to happen for something to be satire. And that's part of the complaint that we often hear that satire is preaching to the choir, right? Everybody knows these absurdities and now we're just laughing at them. But John Oliver is unique in that he's literally teaching while entertaining. It's interesting thinking about that, particularly as you talk about this kind of, I guess, Trump as, as, as a center of gravity in the midst of the satirical culture around us, that I mean, it seemed to me that was, A, a moment where we recognized or maybe saw how divided we were, how much we were living in worlds where this seemed absurd to you, but it seemed normal to me. But it also struck me as interesting how, at least from my outsider view, President Trump or candidate Trump and then President Trump seemed absolutely immune to satire. And I think about what was the satire Saturday Night Live did with Sarah Palin Mm -hmm. seemed to be kind of a silver bullet, right? It was a sort of death knell to her serious candidacy, the icy rusher from my house. It was like, oh, and that's over. And yet Trump seemed to have endless amounts of satire, parody, informational satire, and it didn't ever seem to land. But am I right about that? Sure. Um, I mean, it landed with the people that didn't like Trump to begin with. Right. And the people that did like Trump wrote off the Hollywood liberal blah, 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 and kept it going. I would also say I think we could talk about the difference in eight years. I don't think Mm. that, I mean, there's more social media um, in the Trump, in the 2016 election than there was in the McCain-Obama election. Um, But we also have to acknowledge the gender differences. Like Sarah Palin was, is, (laughs) is a woman. And, you know, when we are taking 
shots at some at a someone who is a member of a group who has historically been marginalized yeah. that humor has a different effect so like if we say oh um sarah palin is unintelligent and incompetent well yeah. there's a lot of people out there that believe as a beauty queen she's unintelligent and incompetent yeah. to begin with so it all fits. That's sarcasm for those of you who can't see me <laughs> waving my hands. Um, with Trump, a lot of people thought he was unintelligent and incompetent from, you know, 20, 30 years ago. But there were a lot of people who gave him a pass that were not necessarily giving Palin the same pass. At the same time, McCain was coming out and standing right next to her. And yeah. McCain was McCain was not getting that satire. So nope. she was in a you know the secondary role to begin with. Um, and then, you know, I remember one note during the 2008 election. I wish I remember who said it. Um, it was some Republican strategist on CNN when I used to watch CNN. And they said, you know, by putting Palin in this position, they're giving Republicans the chance to vote for history without having to vote for Obama. So in the end, Palin was always a placeholder. And McCain wasn't going to win. She didn't help him. Right. There was no there was no competition there. And so I, I just think they're almost not comparable to talk about. You know, we say remember Slick Willie. Right. Yes, everything. Yes, everything indeed. ran off yeah. his back. If we talk about, you know, Slick Donnie um, <laughs> and being immune from people attempting to assail his, you know, status as a candidate, the way that he then parlayed that into rallying his base is something that I, I feel like I haven't really seen before in a satirical space that all of a sudden it was like every accusation, every joke they used was used as a way to say, well, they never liked me to begin with. And that's why you should vote for me anyway. So is there any possibility for satire in that in this age that is now highly divided? And so whatever you when you attack my side, I only see that as evidence of how much I don't like you. Is there any possibility for satire doing like what John Oliver and others are trying to do to educate, to use that to build a bridge, to get people to say, gosh, that is absurd? So I would say uh, it's not today's age, right? We could talk about Archie Bunker for president. Fair enough. Right. Like and um, Norman Lear said, anybody who sees Archie Bunker and is for Archie Bunker is an idiot. That's very much a paraphrase. I've got the quote somewhere in the book. (laughs) Um, But, you know, like he blew off people who didn't understand his jokes. Sure. Not my problem, you know, and I feel like in those 40, 50 years now, we become more aware that you cannot blow those folks off. Um, there's also some work from 2009 looking at the way Colbert's um, satirical show, The Colbert Rapport, his persona as this sort of right wing Bill O'Reilly inspired pundit landed differently with righties and lefties. Sure. Right. So lefties saw him, liberals, progressives saw him as making fun of. Um, conservative pundits like Bill O'Reilly and righties or conservatives saw him making fun of, they took the jokes dispassionately, making fun of progressives. So, you know, this polarization and its its effect uh, and its moderation of the effectiveness of satire, there we go. <laughs> there go. Um, it's not old. It's not new. It's not this. It's not this year. It's not this media environment. It is a human tendency to read what we want to read. Um, so 
can you have that satire? I think what makes John Oliver unique is also the fact that it's on HBO. Sure. And HBO is long form content with no advertisers. And, you know, he can cuss all day and all night and it's fine. He doesn't, you know, the FCC is softer. So, uh, you know, the extent to which we can have these conversations in the classroom, for example, you know, hours, we spend three hours a week with a student, three hours a week with students, 15 weeks a semester. You can have that long form engagement. HBO allows for that long form engagement. Uh, we're not going to see that when I have what are we at 240, although I see that Twitter is apparently going long form tweets now, but uh, mm. 240 characters when people only read the onion headlines, exactly. right? Yeah. Like you can't teach and um, target inside of 250 words. I mean, you can, but that takes a unique skill set that I would argue most people do not have and most people are not <laughs> attempting to do. And I certainly don't have it. So Me neither. I, I think I, you make a very good point, though, as much as the medias have changed and, and the, the platforms are, are, are changing how we're processing media, it is certainly not new. And one of the great things I loved about your book was how many historical examples get mixed in. So we get Key and Peele, Next to All in the Family, Old Saturday Night Live, like all mixed together. And so it's really rich book for folks, you know, teaching younger students, you know, college or, or maybe even high school who are reading this and saying, oh, I recognize that meme. I know that or I know that American Dad episode. And maybe older folks who just want to kind of understand media a bit better because they're going to say, I remember Archie Bunker. So I guess the question kind of moving us forward is, what is the future for satire? And so clearly the tendency has been there. But I do wonder, I guess for me, I'm particularly wondering about new technologies. So I'm thinking of things like deep fake and AI. Is that going to change satire when I can do videos that are not just me dressing up as Trump, but I could actually create a deep fake of Trump doing sure. something or Biden doing something? Uh, have you seen that Tom Cruise deep fake dude? Yes. Yeah. He's deeply disturbing. He's, he's so good. Um does it change it? Absolutely, it changes it, right? That uh, Although I will say satire, historically, going back to the jester, going back to the broadsheets, um, has been in a position of talking back to power while also hiding from the ire of power, right? So all the jokes had to be surreptitious. They had to be subversive. They had to be read differently by different audiences. And so I think one of the most important things to consider in our current media environment is who are your audiences? And I use that in the plural, right? It's not just who is your audience, but who are your audiences? And I think um, Jon Stewart and The Daily Show really showcase that because they turned Fox News, they, mm. they turned on an audience of people to Fox News cut down, right? They provided like these Fox News supercuts. Um, but showed it to the audience that Fox News didn't anticipate. So suddenly the same messages that are playing well with their audience, singular, are not playing well with their audiences, plural, because everybody can access it. So, and I, I tell this to my students, like you are moving into an environment that is almost impossible, in my opinion, right? You have to anticipate the interpretation of an infinite audience. And so... If you're going to be a satirist, and I would argue a satirist isn't about making jokes, it's about showcasing the absurdity of humanity. If you want to claim to be a satirist and you want to showcase the absurdity of humanity, then you need to think about how every possible audience may interpret your message. And you have to decide whether or not that's good with you. And, you know, I, what is the future of satire? 
I would like to say that it has to work on multiple levels with multiple people, that it's satire to one and dispassionate Mm. commentary to another. But you as a satirist have to make sure that that dispassionate commentary isn't actively doing harm. The book is Diversity and Satire from Dr. Sharice Laprie. It is an absolutely brilliant book that unpacks a lot of this and is genuinely fun to read and, and quite funny and does open up the door to the absurdity of society. Now, on Pop Life, we have our own moment of absurdity, Sharice. Oh, yeah. As you will remember well, we like to end our episodes with a little absurd game we call the Fast Five. I will ask Sharice five either-or questions. She will follow her heart and instinct and choose the right answer. You know I have a hard time answering in the binary, man. <laughs> like I speak 80 minutes at a time, but let's do it. We're going to try. Pop life is, is a hard life here. Okay, question number one for you. Would you rather host the iconic sketch comedy show Saturday Night Live? Yes. Or... <laughs> The White House Correspondents' Dinner, which is known for its lampooning of political leaders. Which would you rather host? SNL. SNL, SNL hands down. Because, A, I don't think my I, my political chops don't have to be that good. I, and I think my political chops are probably better than the average. But, you know, I, I, I'm friends with uh, Larry Wilmore. And oh, so yeah. he did uh, Obama's last one. And that was brilliance chef's kiss um so like i i don't feel like i could compare at least snl has a lot of highs and lows and flops and i would get to meet the musician yep so that's you know like there's no musicians (laughs) at the white house correspondence dinner and i don't know who the musician would be but i'm sure that that would also be an excellent opportunity and then maybe i'd date pete davidson there you go, as, as, as indeed I'm planning to as well. So we'll put a call into Lauren Michaels and see if we can do that. Perfect. Question number two for you, uh, Sharice. If you had to spend the rest of your life in one animated TV show, would you be heading on down to South Park or moving in next to Marge and Homer Simpson in Springfield? Where are you going to live? Oh, I show my age. It's definitely The Simpsons. Um, <laughs> and I'll tell you why. Is one of the things that really irks me about South Park. When it's good, it's good. But... Cartman doesn't get his comeuppance enough. And that's, you know, that's what sometimes for me where South Park misses is because you're not supposed to be like Cartman, but they don't always show that. And that's I'd like them to underline that more frequently. And I don't think I could I couldn't be a teacher with that child in my classroom. Oh, my (laughs) gosh. No, I'll take Bart over Cartman any day of the week. You heard it here, folks. Question number three for you, Sharice. If you could sit down for a cup of coffee with one contemporary comedian, would you choose Wanda Sykes or Leslie Jones? Oh, oh, because I was going to be like, Wanda, I didn't know who you were going to follow up with that. Leslie Jones. Again, I... I don't, I don't, can I get, can I take both? I can't take both. Um, I, I mean, I want to say Wanda because I have admired Wanda Sykes mm. for decades. Um, but Leslie Jones is good at what she does. If I could be on the, her Olympics, like her Olympics commentary, I would yeah. go with Leslie Jones. But if we're just talking about straight dinner, probably Wanda Sykes. Okay. So dinner with Wanda and then we'll show up later and watch uh, the Olympics with Leslie. Yes. Question number four for you. Uh, in your wonderful book, Diversity and Satire, you talk a little bit about the many comedians who have used the actual words spoken by President Trump to satirize him. Yes. So which do you think was the best Trump? Was it George Lopez, who made a fake interview with Telemundo, or Sarah Cooper, who lip-synced to Trump's voice on TikTok? Oh, I got to go with Sarah Cooper. I think George Lopez is good. I think it's a great segment. But 
her ability to just turn out content every week because it, it literally wrote itself, right? It was the format of TikTok, the format of that one minute lip syncing. It was it, it was amazing. And so I would have to give it to Sarah Cooper over um, George Lopez. On I, I will say her videos were one of the few times I laughed during much of that period when I saw her with the light bulbs and the yeah. disinfectant. It was genuinely like, OK, I can laugh in the midst of everything. So let me go to question number five, raising the bar a little here. Okay. Uh, literature Oof. is filled with satirical novels. Mm-hmm. So on a more serious note, which of these classics would you pick as the top of the literary satirical heap? Would it be George Orwell's Animal Farm or Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels? All right. I'll tell you. I'm going to go with Animal Farm primarily because when I was nine or eight, I read Animal Farm. My grandfather gave it to me, and I thought it was a cute story about animals. (laughs) (laughs) Ten years later, I read it again. I was like, this is some heavy stuff. And I still have my grandfather's copy of um, Animal Farm in on my shelf. And oh. so, yeah, I'm I, I'm also an Orwell girl all the way. Yeah, it's a little bit like watching uh, reading 1984 and thinking it's about a guy who watches TV a lot. Exactly. Know, so or Fahrenheit 451. <laughs> it's like, why don't they like books? I don't get it. I don't like books either. So, uh, <laughs> Sharice, as always, we'd like to end our episodes by asking our guests, what is in your pop life? So what are you loving? Is there a show you're binging? Is there something you want to promote to listeners out there? Uh, well, you know, I will always promote Critical and Curious, which is my podcast with Bob Thompson. Uh, first season is on Fast and Furious. Second season is a case study on Keanu Reeves. And the third season is on Romeo and Juliet. Um, and so we have a couple episodes coming up. John Wick 4. Tune in for our follow-up on Franchise Keanu Part 3. And also Fast X is coming up. So we will have new episodes for those as well. But all the episodes are available at criticalandcurious.com. So we will listen to that podcast after Pop Life. And then, of course, we will go out and get diversity and satire, laughing at processes of marginalization from Dr. Sharice LaPree. Thanks to Sharice for joining us. And remember, if it's happening in your pop life, we'll be talking about it here. I'll see you all next time. Thanks for listening to Pop Life, a production of WAER, Syracuse Public Media. You can find archived episodes at WAER.org. And don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen for automatic delivery of new episodes.